0: What happens after you die? Most of you probably hope you'll make it to heaven. A place in your mind where the light is always shining, angels play their harps in the clouds and your disembodied spirit floats around peacefully throughout eternity. To many of us, that may sound a little underwhelming, but if you're disappointed, don't be. Because for us, that place is not our home. Good morning and happy Easter. It's great to see you guys here today. I just want to extend another welcome. I know that Uh, There's a lot of places you could be right now, but you're here, and that matters. Uh, To all the first-time guests in the room today, I get a special welcome to you, and if we can serve you in any way, answer questions, uh, before you leave, just stop at that Next Steps table in the lobby, and we would love to connect with you out there, okay? All right, well, hey, if you have a Bible, grab it. We are going to be in a book today in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, the title of my message today is Heaven is Not Our Home. Heaven is not our home. And before you think I'm some kind of heretic, like what kind of church did we just come to on Easter? Let me explain, okay? What I mean by that is what people often think of as heaven, that's not our home. All right, I can remember as a kid growing up in church being trained in evangelism at a very young age. Uh, In fact, the church I attended, they would send us into the community as middle and high school students to go knock on doors and practice sharing our faith. And one of the first questions they taught us to ask was, hey, excuse me, do you know where you're going when you die? Like for some reason we thought death was a good lead in. And so I I just remember in asking that question, always assuming that when we die, we go somewhere and we stay there forever. And I only knew of two places that we could go. You either go to heaven or you go to hell, right? Uh, Hell sounded terrible. It's hot and there's fire. It's dark and you're tortured. And so I knew I definitely don't want to go there. But if I'm being really honest with you today, heaven didn't sound all that exciting either. Because all I had ever heard about heaven led me to believe that it was this ethereal place where disembodied spirits just kind of float around. You know, angels are on their clouds playing their harps, and we're all singing worship songs around the clock in some weird language that none of us know. And I would bet that for some of you in the room today, that's the picture that comes to mind when you think of heaven, right? Heaven for you is the floaty place. And so like me, hell sounds awful, but the thought of heaven doesn't sound too terribly exciting. And if that is true for you this morning, here's the really, really good news. That place in your mind is not our home. That place in your mind is not our home. Instead, God has something far more incredible in store for those of us who are here who follow his son Jesus in faith. Let me show you what I mean. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. Here's what it says For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. We're going to stop there and talk, okay? Uh, This book of 1 Corinthians that we're reading from, It was actually a letter written by a guy named Paul to a very dysfunctional church in the Greek city of Corinth. Okay, there were members in this church committing incest. There were members in this church suing each other. There were members in this church sleeping with prostitutes. There were members in this church getting drunk at communion. And on top of all that, they started believing some really unbiblical things about resurrection. You see, at this time in Greek culture, there were different philosophies floating around about what happens to people when they die. Uh, Some of those philosophies fell more in line with agnosticism or atheism. And so they would teach that when a person dies, that's it. Uh, Game over. There is no afterlife. Your body goes into the ground and you become fertilizer. Well, then there were other philosophies that promoted this teaching called dualism. Okay, dualism states that all physical matter, including our physical bodies, is inherently evil, while the spirit and the mind are inherently good. Okay, you see these teachings when you study philosophers like Plato and Cicero, who often described our physical bodies as a type of prison that our souls or spirits needed to be delivered from. And for guys like that, deliverance came through death, In fact, Cicero taught this about our bodies. He says, nobody in their right mind, having gotten rid of it, would want it or something like it back again. And so what happened in Corinth was these type of of false teachings, they started creeping into the life of the church. And as a result, the Christians there started to deny the reality of bodily resurrection. And so in love for them, the Apostle Paul writes to correct their wrong thinking. And I love this in verse 3. He starts with this. He says, hey, I just want to remind you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, if you jump back to verse 1, you find out quickly that what he's talking about here is the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. And more specifically, we're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds us, please don't miss this, that the gospel isn't firstly important it's of first importance all the time. In other words, let me say it like this. The good news of Jesus Christ isn't only important for people who don't believe, it's as equally important for those of us who do believe. But I love the way Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says that the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. It's not just the starting place, it's the whole thing. So not only do we believe it to enter the kingdom of God, but to make spiritual progress in the kingdom, we must keep believing it day by day, moment by moment. You see, you have to understand, contrary to what you might think, Christianity is not about you agreeing to a set of doctrines about the person and work of Jesus and then moving on to more important things. Please hear me. There are no more important things. Okay, the gospel is of greatest importance to our Christian faith. Everything we believe hangs on this good news. And as Christians, again, we never move beyond it. Instead, with everything in us, we work really hard to beat it into our hearts and brains constantly so that it becomes the driving force in our lives to follow Jesus and live in obedience to Him. And so the question becomes well, what is the gospel? Uh, if this is good news that we are meant to beat into our hearts and brains constantly, what are the specifics of this good news? Well, Paul tells us right here in the passage. Uh, he reminds us that first, the gospel starts with Christ. It starts with Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he left heaven, he humbled himself, wrapped himself in flesh, and came to live among us. And while he was here, he lived a life that none of us had been able to live, a life of sinless perfection. All right? anybody want to grab the microphone for me and come on up here and argue with the rest of us about how sinless and perfect you are? I didn't think so, because only Jesus did that, right? He's the only person in history who has ever lived a life of perfect obedience to God. Secondly, the gospel tells us that Jesus died for our sins. Okay, answer this question if you know it. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches in several places that the penalty of sin is what? It's death. But not just physical death, spiritual death. Meaning eternal separation from God, experiencing the judgment of God. When Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago, he suffered that penalty on our behalf. See, Jesus didn't have to die. He died willingly. He was an innocent man who needed to bear no penalty because he was sinless and perfect in every way. But as Paul tells us, he died for us. but right? he suffered physically for us. He was beaten, he was spit upon. His beard was ripped out. He had a crown of thorns driven onto his head, nails, and, uh, nails driven through his hands and feet. And he hung on a cross for hours, covered in his own blood, sweat, and tears for you and me. But more significantly, Jesus suffered spiritually. Uh, the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians wrote 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he tells us that as Christ died on the cross, he became our sin. So I want you to think right now in this moment about the sin in your life. What have you done, past tense? What are you currently doing, present tense, that has opposed God or is opposing God and his way of life? Here's what Paul's teaching, that as Christ died upon the cross, somehow God supernaturally took our sin off of us before we were ever alive, and he put it onto Jesus, and then he proceeded to pour out every bit of wrath and judgment our sin deserved onto him. And he did it so that undeserving sinners like you and me could be loved, forgiven, and accepted by him both now and in eternity. Third, the gospel tells us that Jesus was buried. And his burial matters because who gets buried? Okay, not a trick question. Come on, answer me. Who? Dead people, right? Yeah. You don't bury people who are still alive, unless you're part of the mob or something. But we all know, like, dead people are the ones who get buried. And so the fact that Jesus was buried proves that he actually died. This is really important for you to know. Because there are belief systems in our world today, like Islam, that will teach Jesus never died. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he suffered for a time. But he was taken by God into heaven fully alive. And I would tell you, there's absolutely no reason for you to buy into teachings like that because all the sources who were alive and writing at the time of Jesus all agree that he not only died, but he was buried in the tomb of a very wealthy, well-known man named Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, everybody knew where this tomb was located, which is why the Romans put soldiers outside the tomb to guard it. They didn't want anybody messing with Jesus' dead body. And his dead body stayed in that tomb for three days, uh, during which I imagine hell was throwing a party, right? We did it. We killed the Son of God. But praise God, the fourth part of the gospel declares that on the third day, Jesus rose again. Amen? Come on. This is Easter. This is what we're here to celebrate today. And his resurrection proves two big things. Number one, that God accepted the sacrifice he made for sinners like us. And then number two, Jesus now has the ability to save us out of sin, death, and hell forever if we'll put our faith in him. You see, here's the truth. Here's the truth. No one and nothing can save you from those things except for Jesus. Right? You can't save yourself. Like, good luck. Try really hard to be a good person. Follow the rules. Come to church. Whatever. You can't save yourself. Nobody else can save you by just, like, hoping things go really well for you in the end. Only Jesus can save you. Why? Why? Because he's the only one who's ever picked a fight with death and hell and come out victorious. So hear me. I don't know what you're trusting in today in hopes that after death, you're going to end up in some better place. All I know is if it ain't Jesus, you ain't getting there. Right? Only Jesus saves and his resurrection proves it. So why should you believe that? Why should you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, because of what Paul goes on to say next. That after his resurrection, he appeared. He appeared. He appeared, like, you have to understand, Jesus didn't come out of the grave on Sunday and say, peace out, out of here, see y'all later, and just, like, zoom up into the sky, okay? No, instead, after his resurrection, he hung out on the earth for about 40 days, and he appeared to different people. Paul tells us that first he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, by the way, his chief apostle. Uh, Then he appeared to the 12, the rest of the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Some Bible scholars think this might be a reference to the ascension. 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus did eventually say, All right, peace, we'll see y'all later, I'm out of here. And he zoomed up into the sky. And so this is a beautiful uh, moment where Jesus went and he took his seat at the right hand of God where he is presently ruling and reigning over all things. Uh, that might have happened then. We don't know. I like to think that it did, either there or at the giving of the Great Commission. But all we know based on what Paul says is that at some point during those 40 days, the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people in one place at one time. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, along with the other apostles. And then finally, Paul says that Jesus appeared to him. And listen, these post-resurrection appearances are highly, highly significant, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, They remind us that our Christian faith hangs on the eyewitness testimony of a historical event. Let me just say that again because you need to get this. These appearances prove, remind us, that our Christian faith hangs on the eyewitness testimony of a historical event. Really important for you to know that. Because I would imagine that many of you in the room today believe that our faith hangs on a book. Um, I would even bet that there are some skeptics and critics in the room that believe if you can disprove our book, you can disprove our faith. But that's not true because our faith doesn't hang on a book. It hangs on an event. And listen, for all you Christians in the room right now who are getting really worried about me, like, James, what are you saying? Where are you going with this? Let me, just rest, uh, let me just give you some assurance. Please lean in and listen. If you need to tweet this to make yourself feel better, you can. But hear me. As your pastor, I believe with all my heart that this is the inspired, inerrant authoritative word of God okay which is why which is why every week here at Crosspoint and you know this if this is your church we simply open this book and we teach it we don't try to get cute with it and then we strive by the power and help of the Holy Spirit to submit our lives to its teachings okay so I believe this book is what God says it is but hear me if Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead this book can't help us In fact, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, the God of this book has lied to us. And that, my friends, is a God who cannot be trusted. Our faith hangs on an event. And the reason we believe that event took place is because hundreds of eyewitnesses to that event have passed down their credible testimony to us over the centuries. That's first. The second reason these appearances matter so much is because the life change they produced proves the resurrection. The life change they produced proves the resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, After Jesus was arrested, do you remember what Peter did? You don't even have to be a church person to know this one, but uh, Peter. Jesus is arrested, taken away, and Peter goes, I don't know the dude. No, like seriously. I mean, I, I know like yesterday I said I would die for him, but I swear I don't know him. Never seen that guy in my life. All the disciples went into hiding because they worried if they showed their faces they would suffer the same fate as Jesus, their fearless leader. Yet after he resurrected and appeared to them, they went on to become some of the most courageous men and women the world has ever known and many of them laid their lives down for preaching a message of a risen Savior. Right, That's the book of Acts if you want to read it on your own time this week. Uh, Those 500 eyewitnesses, guess what they did after seeing the resurrected Jesus? They changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And I know some of you are like, dude, is that really a big deal? Yes, it's a huge deal. Okay, look, if you have ever tried to get church people to change anything, (laughs) especially, look, especially after they've been doing it for almost 1,500 years, you know what a big deal this is, right? But listen, more significantly and more importantly, Saturday was the Sabbath day for the Jewish people. It was their holy day. Uh, a day that God himself had commanded that they set apart unto him. Hey, on this day, I want you to rest. I want you to remember. I want you to worship. Don't do any work. And so for them to change that day, it signaled that something significant had happened. Something like their Savior resurrecting from the dead. All right, how about James? Half-brother of Jesus? Jesus? Before the resurrection, he refused to believe that Jesus was God, and who can blame him? If you had a sibling running around telling people they were God, you wouldn't believe him either, would you? (laughs) Unless they did something to prove it, like die and raise from the dead. And can't you just picture it like Jesus, you know, comes out of the tomb on Sunday, and maybe on Monday morning, he knocks on James' door, and James opens the door, and he said, told you, bro. And in that moment, James is like, well, dang, I have to worship him now. And he does. Worshiped his own brother as God, became the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he died a martyr's death for preaching that his brother was the risen Savior. And then we come to Paul, the self-described persecutor of the church. This was a guy who hated Jesus, hated Christians, actually spent his life hunting Christians down and murdering them for what they believed. Until the resurrected Jesus appeared to him Uh, He was out on another christian hunting trip and he's traveling to a place called damascus and while on the road that leads there Jesus showed up knocked paul off of his horse blinded him and said hey bro. We're not doing this anymore Uh, I'm done with you persecuting and killing my people and today i'm making you one of my people You're mine And from this point forward, you're going to carry my name to the world And so in a moment, Paul stops killing Christians, and he becomes one. And I would argue that he's more responsible for the spread of Christianity to the world than any other person in human history. Again, what's my point? What's my point? What's simple? That these post-resurrection appearances, the life change they produced, proves that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. But here's the thing. Many of you in the room already believe that, don't you? You do. I know some of you don't, and that's okay. We're going to keep talking. Uh, But many of you in the room don't need me to stand up here and make a case for you because you already believe Jesus conquered the grave and he's alive today. But what you may not believe is what the Corinthian church failed to believe, which is this, that one day in the future, you too will experience your own bodily resurrection. And so Paul keeps writing for people like you. Look at verse 12. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of of all people most to be pitied. So here in verse 12, Paul addresses the major problem of denying resurrection. He says to his readers, the Corinthians, listen, if what culture is telling you is true, And your physical bodies are evil and you don't need them them, and the goal is to get rid of them. And after you die, your spirit just kind of floats around somewhere forever and nobody resurrects. He said, if that's true, what that means is that not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. And my friends, there are massive, massive implications in making a denial like that. And Paul highlights six of them right here in the text. Okay, I'll point them out. Number one, he says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, our preaching is pointless So we should stop talking to people about Jesus because what's the point in talking about a dead Savior? Number two, our faith is useless. We have no reason to put any confidence in God or his promises to us because he's lied to us, and what can he do for us anyway if the Savior he sent is still in the grave? Number three, God is misrepresented, so we're lying to him by telling others that he's raised Jesus from the dead if, in fact, he didn't. Number four, we're still stuck in our sins. Because, come on, what can a dead Savior do to rescue sinners from sin? Nothing. Absolutely nothing, which means we are all left to pay for our sin on our own. Number five, the dead have perished. Okay, in the text, Paul mentions those who have fallen asleep in Christ, which is a reference to Christians who die. Okay, we know from the Bible that when we as Christians die, our spirits do leave our bodies and they immediately go into the presence of God. Uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which means after death, listen, we do enter a disembodied state, but we don't stay in that state forever. You see, what people often think of as heaven or as home isn't home at all. It's a holding place. It's an intermediate state. A place where spirits dwell until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And at his second coming, those spirits are reunited with brand new resurrected bodies, just like the one Jesus received at his resurrection. But here's Paul in the text saying to us, look, if none of that's going to happen, if people don't resurrect from the dead and Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead, then all of your Christian friends who've died, they're not in some better place. Okay, they have perished because dead saviors can't save dead people. And then finally, number six, we're to be pitied. We're to be pitied. I say this with all humility and all honesty um, to the critics and the skeptics in the room today. If Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead, you win. Like seriously, you win. Um, There's nothing to argue about. Everything we believe as Christians is complete foolishness. You have every right to feel very sorry for us. And everything we're doing right here, right now is a massive waste of our time. And what we should be doing instead is what Paul mentions in verse 32. We should be out there in the world somewhere, eating, drinking, partying, and waiting to die. But, but, if Christ has been raised from the dead, that changes everything. And every person in this room is forced to do something with Jesus at that point. Keep reading with me. Look at verse 20. Paul goes on. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so here's Paul saying, listen, all those implications that I just mentioned, none of them are in effect. Why? Because as the evidence shows, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. In fact, Paul says he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. All right, he just rips this concept of first fruits right out of the Old Testament. And he's simply teaching here that Jesus went first in resurrection as the example and guarantee of what is, is uh, to come for us. Okay, So just as death entered the world through one man, Adam. See this in Genesis 3 when he and his wife Eve rebelled against God. Uh, resurrection has entered the world through one man, Jesus Christ. And his resurrection shows and secures our future resurrection. And then Paul goes on to talk about the timing of all this, okay? Uh, He says again that 2,000 years ago, Jesus went first. And then one day in the future, we have no idea when this is going to happen, one day in the future, the resurrected Jesus is coming back. And on that day, what happened to him will happen to us. Okay, if you're already dead and gone, your spirit will leave that intermediate state. And it'll be resurrected with a brand new physical body. You'll be raised up to new life, and you will come bursting forth out of your grave. How awesome is that going to (laughs) be? I love it. If you're still alive at the return of Jesus Christ, this is fascinating to me. Paul says in verse 52 that you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So as quickly as you can blink your eyes, God himself will supernaturally transform your earthly body into a glorious, heavenly, resurrected body. And then comes the end. Uh, You should know that there are all kinds of debates and disagreement about what happens at the end of of time. Uh, There are some different views out there, and I don't have time to get into those views today. So if you're interested, you can go Google them and confuse yourself, and then we'll talk, okay? (laughs) But listen, all I want to do is highlight what Paul highlights. This This is the important part to know, okay? At some point after the resurrected Jesus resurrects his people... He will hand the kingdom over to God the Father. Every authority, every power, every force of evil and darkness will finally be conquered. And Jesus will once and for all put death in its grave. Amen. This is the future that awaits us. And what I want us to take from all that is this. This is the big point of today. I want us to to take away that the hope of following Jesus isn't heaven, it's resurrection. That the hope of following Jesus is isn't heaven, it's resurrection. Okay, let me make the point again because I want to be sure that you're getting this. Christian in the room, our hope is not the floaty place. In fact, can we just say that all together so that I know you're locking that in? On the count of three, you ready? One, two, three. Our hope is not... All right, good job, you're getting it. (laughs) But seriously, listen, our confidence does not come from knowing that after death, we're just going to float around out there somewhere forever. No, our confidence comes in knowing that one day in the future, we're going to be resurrected by Jesus into new physical bodies, and we're going to spend the rest of eternity in a physical place with Him. And with that said, as we close, what I want to do is I just want to go back to where we first started. And I want to take a couple of minutes, and I want to talk about home. I want to talk about home. Um, If heaven, as most people often think of it, isn't home, what is home going to be like for us? I want to help you picture it as best I can, okay? And uh, for all you ADD people in the room that get distracted easily, if you need to, close your eyes to just focus. I would invite you to do that with me right now in this moment. I just want you to imagine it. Just picture it, okay? Picture, if you will, a physical earth, much like the one we are currently living on yet it's been renovated, it's been restored, and its beauty far surpasses this current earth. So just think about the most stunning sunset you've ever seen, the most majestic mountain range you've ever seen, the most beautiful beaches you've ever laid eyes on. Their magnificence will pale in comparison to the beauty of the new earth. Why? Because sin won't be there. (laughs) Sin won't be there. You see, sin is like a disease. It infects and affects all of life, including creation, which is why Paul in Romans 8 says that creation groans for this day of resurrection. That creation itself has been corrupted and it longs to be set free. And my friends, once it is finally set free, our eyes will see a beauty they never saw this side of eternity. But in addition, since sin won't be there, Neither will its consequences be there. I mean, come on, just picture it with me. No more injustice, no more poverty, no more violence, no more wars, no more hospitals or doctors or medicine, no more lawyers, no more prisons, no more police officers, no more courtrooms, no more funeral homes or hearses or cemeteries, no more presidents, no more tyrants, no more dictators or ruling majorities just King Jesus, ruling and reigning over all things, and we as his people, joyfully living under his authority. And as we live under his authority, we do so as human beings in physical bodies, bodies that will never suffer, bodies that will never feel pain, bodies that will never get sick, bodies that will never die again. And in those bodies, I believe with all my heart, based on what I see in the scriptures, that we will enjoy many of the same things we enjoyed while we were here. Like, I plan on getting some workouts in, playing some sports on the new earth. <laughs> I plan on doing some fishing, uh, catch and release, obviously, right? <laughs> I plan on reading some books and watching some movies. And I'm even holding out hope that maybe, just maybe, there's going to be a Chick-fil-A there. All right? Like, <laughs> like Seriously. Go there with me for a moment. I know on the new earth there's no death anymore and we're friends with all the animals, but I have to think that the God who can do more than we can ask or imagine could figure out a way to create a chicken sandwich without killing a chicken, amen? So I'm going to hold out hope. But seriously, listen to me, don't miss this seriously. For the rest of eternity, we as the people of God will be with the resurrected Jesus in physical bodies, in a physical place, experiencing life in the way God meant it to be. That's home. That's home. And in the future, whenever you think about heaven or talk about heaven, that's the version of heaven you should think about. Because that's the only version that you find in the pages of the scriptures. And that's the only version that can offer you any kind of hope for this life, right? Hope to battle against temptation. Hope to stand strong in the face of trials and hardships. Hope, listen, hope to faithfully follow after Jesus Christ until the day you finally see him face to face. And here's what I'd bet today as we close. I would bet that there are some of you in this room right now who desperately need that hope. Like you don't know this Jesus we've been talking about. You have never believed in faith the good news of the gospel, that Jesus lived, that he died for your sins, he was buried, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and one day he's coming back to take us home. But I would imagine that for some of you right now, in the deepest parts of who you are, you're going, I don't even know why, but I believe that's true. I believe that good news is true, and I want to follow that Jesus. You see, I I need you to know, if you want to be with Jesus there, the way that that happens is by you choosing to follow Jesus here. (laughs) You don't get to be with Jesus there if you reject him here. And so if you're that person who knows today, I need to put my faith in that Jesus, I want to help you do it right now. So can we just bow our heads, close our eyes all across the room? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they do, um, let me just first quickly say to all the Christians in the room, Um, My prayer for you for this weekend was that God would captivate you by these incredible truths, (laughs) Um, that your future home, the thought of it would overwhelm you. And look, I get it. I know some of you just listened for like the last 35 minutes and you're going, well, James, I already knew all that. That's great. I'm glad you knew it. What are you doing with it? How are those truths about your future impacting your present life? How are they motivating you to love God, to love people, uh, to strive every day to be more like Jesus? Listen, if you walked in as that sleepy Christian today, my prayer for you is that God would wake you up. And maybe you just need to pray that for yourself. God, wake me up out of my spiritual stupor. Captivate my heart again. But listen, for those of you listening to me right now that are those people that just know, man, I, I need to follow that Jesus. I don't know him. I've never put my faith in him. James, I I haven't ever believed those things that you taught today, but I believe they're true. And I need the hope that Jesus Christ offers. I want to help you put your faith in him right now. Just wherever you're seated, why don't you just pray something like this? Just say to God, God, I need resurrection hope. I confess that I'm a sinful person and that I need a savior. And I believe today that Jesus is that Savior. And so I put my faith in the good news of the gospel. I believe that Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. That he rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell for me. And so God, I'm asking you right now, would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. God, take hold of my life and give me hope of an eternity spent with you. I say yes to following Jesus.